Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Well, none of us like that feeling of guilt. We all know what it's like. And sometimes we, people will do drastic things to get rid of that feeling of guilt that is in their heart. One of the more uh, interesting, I think, dramatic ways I've seen people do this has something to do when they cheat the U.S. government. And they feel really bad about not quite being honest with their taxes. In fact, the U.S. government has a, a allowed a way that they can try and get rid of that guilty feeling. I don't know if you realize this, but the U.S. government has three donation funds, and one of them is called the Conscience Fund. It was originally established in 1811, and since 1811, it, people have given $5.7 million towards it to ease their conscience because they haven't been quite honest with the government. Now, some donations have been really small. In fact, there was a man in Massachusetts who gave a donation to the conference fund of nine cents. He felt guilty for reusing a three-cent stamp twice. Sometimes donations have been rather large. There was a man in Jersey City who gave multiple installments of $40,000 to the Conscience Fund. But as you would guess, most of the gifts to the Conscience Fund are done anonymously because people don't want to be found out about how they cheated the government. Actually, a large number of the gifts are given as deathbed confessions. And people give it to their pastor, asking their pastor to give this to the government before they meet their maker. They want to make things right. And by the way, if you have a deathbed confession and you need to give to the conscience fund, I gladly will take that and handle that for you. Um, I only charge 10%, just so you know. And uh, all that money will go to my kid's college, college fund to ease my conscience. So, But um, this... I, the conscience fund has been rather interesting. One of the, uh, the, the most memorable gifts to the conscience fund came with a, a letter to the IRS. It said this. It said, I cheated on last year's taxes. And since then, I haven't been able to sleep. Here is a cashier's check for $1,000. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest of what I owe. Well, you know, I suspect that nobody here has actually written a check to the conscience fund. I suspect that that particular part may not apply to you. But the rest of us do understand that feeling of a guilty conscience. We know what it's like to have said things we shouldn't said. And we lay in bed at night awake feeling guilty for what we've done. We know what it's like to have hurt or injured people we love, and we don't quite know what to do to get rid of that guilt and to get rid of that shame, and it eats away at us again and again. Now, if you turn to the internet, interestingly on the internet, you find a lot of pop psychology out there saying that uh, that conscience that eats away at you is not something you should necessarily listen to. You should try and push it down. You should try and ignore it. You should constantly feed yourself feelings of affirmation 
telling you that you are a good person. You should have those guilty feelings go away. Well, this morning, I'm going to tell you something a little different. I'm going to tell you that the guilt that you have in your conscience over things that you maybe you have said and done is actually a good thing. Guilt is a gracious gift from God that He uses to lead us to repentance. Repentance to Him over our sin and uses to repentance in relationships that we've broken. That guilt can be one of the great tools in God's, um, in God's hands to restore relationships in our relationship with God. Now, for the last few weeks, we have been looking at the book of Genesis. And actually, for the last few weeks, we've been specifically focusing in on in Joseph. And Joseph has had a real roller coaster of a life. As you remember, he, he ended up being sold into slavery by his very own brothers. The next turn in the story of his life is when his boss's wife made passes at him, and he chose purity over adultery. As a spurned woman, she accused him of a rape he didn't commit and ended up in jail. Then in jail, while well, he had a chance to care for a high-profile prisoner called the cupbearer. And while he cared for the cupbearer and even interpreted the cupbearer's dreams, and he said to the cupbearer, please remember me to Pharaoh when you're released. The cupbearer was released and then completely forgot about him for two years. I mean, it felt like God had forgotten about Joseph. It felt like his life was completely out of control. But then last week, we saw it was actually not out of control. It was actually part of God's perfect timing. Because two years after the cupbearer was released, Pharaoh had a dream of skinny cannibal cows and skinny cannibal corn, and he had no idea how to interpret it. The magicians and the wise men didn't know what to say. And then the cupbearer remembered Joseph. And Joseph was taken from the prison, and he interpreted through God's grace Pharaoh's dream. And in a moment, Pharaoh elevated him from the dungeon to be second in command of all of Egypt. And as some people would say, he instantly became the second most powerful person in the ancient world. Talk about an amazing turnaround. But while everything looked good on the surface, there was still unsolved problems. During those seven years of plenty, and we're probably about eight to nine years into Joseph being out of the dungeon and things going well, a second in command of all of Egypt, there is this unresolved issue of his family. This unresolved issue of the relationship between him and his brothers. It's broken. Deeply broken. And you can ignore it, but it will not go away. And beginning in this chapter, we see how God is going to restore a deeply broken family relationship. And for some of us this morning, we are in families that have deeply broken relationships. And these next few chapters will be very important as we see how God restores this family to health and wholeness. And today we're going to see how he uses the tool of guilt 
guilt of past sin to be able to get the job done. So jump in with me in Genesis chapter 42. If you have your outlines, go ahead and follow along. It begins with this. When Jacob learned there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Now why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. It was 22 years ago when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. And for 22 years, the thought of what they had done haunted their minds. When a traveler came from Egypt and passed through and stayed in Jacob's tent, and they had the campfire in the evening, and the traveler talked, and he shared of things he had seen and done in that land, you know that all of his sons were haunted by the fact that that traveler might say that he had met a slave in Egypt, a slave that called Jacob and his family home. It was a slim chance, but you know it was in the back of their minds all the time, haunting them. After 22 years, their cover could be blown in an instant. In 22 years, they lay in bed at night, hoping and praying that Joseph, as a slave in Egypt, would not earn his freedom and come back home. Could you imagine what it would be like if Joseph came home 22 years later and then told the rest of the story? And their 22-year lie would be completely blown? Can you think about all the amount of work it took for ten brothers to agree to keep a lie submerged below the surface for 22 years as friends you know, and neighbors would say, what really happened? Nobody could crack. Imagine the stress of living under that. And then for 22 years, seeing your father go into the corner of his tent and pick up that bloodied and torn coat of many colors. And the tears, the big tears, start running down his face as he just burst out in tears, holding the last remaining thing he had on his son. And the whole time, they knew where Joseph was. They may not have had his exact mailing address, but they knew that he had been alive in Egypt, and they were responsible for their father grieving and crying and being heartbroken again and again. And during these 22 years, they probably avoided one subject, anything that dealt with Egypt. And the famine 
the famine was used as a tool of God in their lives because when there was no food in Canaan and there was only food in Egypt, I suspect that Jacob would say again and again, Sons, I think we should go down to Egypt and buy some food there. And as soon as he talked about Egypt, they got uncomfortable and uneasy. There was guilt lying just below the surface. In fact, I think they were all down to like 5% body fat when finally Jacob said to them, you know, why do you guys just keep looking at each other about this? Go down to Egypt so we don't die. Get your act together, boys. Now, it doesn't say it directly in the text, but I think that after 22 years, Jacob suspected that he didn't know the whole story. Jacob knew there's something wasn't just right. There's another hint in the text. You don't see it in the English, but you see it in the Hebrew. You notice he didn't send Benjamin down with them. Benjamin was about 24 years old at this point. But Benjamin doesn't go because he said, I'm afraid that harm may come to him. The Hebrew word for harm can also be translated mischief. Isn't that interesting? That if he goes with you, you guys will do something to him. You see, I think Jacob knew something was wrong. And there was more to the story that he couldn't get from his sons. And there was an emotional distance that he felt for 22 years because of their guilt that was unconfessed. And by the way, if you're taking notes, let me just give you the first application point here. And this is it. If we choose to live with our sin instead of confessing our sin, our sin will touch the lot... <laughs> Our sin will touch all of our relationships. If we choose to just live with our sin, not confess our sin, our sin will touch all of our relationships. Jacob felt it. See, oftentimes we think we can just manage our sin. Nobody has to know. We can just keep it undercover, keep it to ourselves. We can compartmentalize things. But here is what happens. When all of a sudden people start talking about our Egypt, the conversation gets really awkward. And people start to feel there's something not right that you're not telling me. And by the way, this applies to our lives very clearly. I don't know if this has happened to you, but I've seen this a number of times in marriage situations where there's an issue between a husband and a wife, and maybe uh, the husband, for instance, isn't telling his wife everything. Maybe he was watching something on the television program that he knows that she would not be happy with him seeing. Maybe he was looking at something on the internet that now he is filled with guilt and shame uh, about it. There's something going on, and she says, you know, I just feel there's a distance between us. There's not total wholeness on relationship. I can't put my finger on it, but I feel the guilt. And folks, that's the truth. If we don't confess our sin, people can feel that sin. They know it. And for women, maybe it's the other way around. 
sometimes women get together and they go in these um, deals where they go on, they get together, they start husband bashing. And all of a sudden you find yourself joining in about all the problems of your husband. And then when you go home, you have this lingering sense of guilt that you said these things about him. And, but he feels it. He feels that relationship breakdown. If that is you, let me tell you, the only way out of that guilt is not by ignoring it, not by pretending it's going to go away, which is exactly what Joseph's brothers did for 22 years, but the only way out is to repent of it and confess it. Not just to, the, to God himself, but to the person that you injured and hurt. The story continues. Now Joseph, he was governor over the land. And he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers, and he spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. And they said, well, we're from the land of Canaan to buy food. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, Oh no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. At this point, I think that Joseph's brothers are not the only ones dealing with the pain of their past. I think Joseph is also dealing with the pain of the past as well. Now, many people don't say that. Let me tell you why I think that as I pondered on that this week. For nine years, approximately, Joseph has been the second most powerful person in the ancient world. Could have said or done anything he wants virtually. But during those nine years, did he ever send anybody out to go looking for his family or go looking for his brothers? When the famine came upon the land and he knew people around him were dying and the only place for hope was the stores of grain that he had and this People were dying not just in Egypt, but as far away as Canaan and beyond. And the only way to live was to come and get food from him. Did he send a caravan of supplies with an army looking to find his family and to help his family? Absolutely not. I think the pain of Joseph's past was so real that his coping mechanism was simply to ignore his past. Forget about his family and try and leave it alone. And then, what happens, sort of unexplainably and unexpectedly, his own brothers show up in his office. <laughs> and his own brothers are standing right in front of him. Now, some of you may not agree with me on this. and That's okay. I, I allow disagreement. Talk about it in your life group. Wrestle it through. But I think in the moment that his brothers showed up and they're right there in front of them, he all of a sudden finds himself processing anger. He is frustrated. 
He is upset. He feels emotionally overwhelmed. And I think that's one of the reasons he is harsh with them. And the reason I say this is because I've experienced this and some of you have experienced this. If somebody has hurt you deeply, and even if it's years later, and there's been no resolution in that relationship, and they walk back in the room, what happens? You emotionally pick up exactly where you left off. You know, this has happened to me. I've had people in my past that have said and done some very hurtful things to me, which doesn't hurt me as bad, but decades ago, to my wife, to my children, and as a father, the angst and the sleepless nights of things that have the people had said and done just were so deeply wounded. And if one of those people was to unexpectedly walk into my office one day, I guarantee you my heart would be literally pounding through my chest in a moment's notice. And I think you'd be the same. That's where I think Joseph finds himself. And especially when they begin with this line, oh, by the way, we're honest men. We've never been spies. Now, this is the great part about studying consecutively through Scripture. Are they honest men? Anything but. Reuben committed incest with one of Jacob's wives. Simeon and Levi are mass murderers. Okay, and they all colluded together to sell Joseph into slavery. And he has that memory very clearly fixed in his mind. Honest men? Oh, yeah, right, sure. Now, this is another point of application I want to give you. And this is not directly related to guilt, but it's associated with guilt. I think it's something we need to hear. Whenever we face people that hurt us in our past, ask God to give us grace to not pick up in the same emotional moments. Whenever we face people that hurt us in our past, ask God to give us grace to not pick up in the same emotional moment. Now let me explain to you why I think I need to say this. I've done enough marriage counseling over 20 plus years that I see what happens is that a couple comes into my office and you can see that they have that standoff between them. And they begin to talk about their issue. And their issue is richly, in my mind, relatively minor. I'm thinking, well, this is something we can just talk out and just work through. But as soon as one buddy says something that's a relatively minor issue, the other person just reacts in anger and in frustration because they pick up in the same emotional moment they left off days or weeks before. And it escalates and spins out of control. Again and again. And sometimes I feel like I want to be a referee and actually have a whistle in the conference room. You know, just blow it. <laughs> Sorry, foul. We can't deal with what happened 10 years ago right now. All we can deal with is this issue right here, right now. Put everything else aside. Stop tapping into the emotions of the past. I have to leave those alone. I'm, I'm not saying it's easy, but there's no other way to move forward. Let's pick up the story. By the way, there's a little copying error I made in the, in the script. If you're following along in the notes, actually, it begins on the next page. So here we go. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. 
And they said, we, your servants, are just 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. But on the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. Notice where God shows up. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of the households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. After they've been accused of spies and they sort of detail out their family, I just want you to notice this. Isn't this really interesting the way they describe themselves? We are 12 brothers, one is at home, and then one is no more. Like, what happened to him? Abducted by aliens? I mean, what a strange term. One all of a sudden just is no more. And I got thinking, after 22 years, why wouldn't they just start calling themselves the 11 brothers? Not constantly the 12 minus 1 that went missing. In my mind, the guilt of what they did to him is constantly in their minds and thoughts. Interestingly, look what happens here. Joseph decides to test them. And I, I thought about this for a long time. And you may not agree with me, but that's okay. Let's just process this through with me. He has an interesting test. It seems like he says, okay, this is the way it's going to be. All of you go to jail, and one of you eventually is going to return and, get, and bring back your brother. Then after three days, all of a sudden Joseph changes his story. He says, okay, the way it is, one of you is going to stay in jail, and the rest of you can go home and bring food for your families. Now, why did he change his story? Here's what I think. Joseph, remember, is dealing with anger. Now, I'm not trying to say he's uncalled for anger. I mean, when your brother sell you into slavery, it's something you should be angry over and feel frustrated with. And he's got emotional, emotional turmoil. And in the moment... He sort of says things I think he regrets saying and doing. Because if all of them but one stay in jail, how much food can one person bring back to the rest of the family that is starving? His extended family will die. And after three days of thinking about it, he realizes that in his anger he overstated something. He overdid something. And he says, you know what? God essentially has convicted me, you know, because I fear God, he says. And he changes it around, and he takes the harshness of what he has done back. And he says, one of you will stay, the rest of you will go, and you can bring food to your families. Now, it doesn't mean, 
that his test needs to totally stop. But in the frustration and anger of the moment, he sort of overdid, I think, what he should have done. And this is what I want to give you as an application point. The grace of guilt leads us to repentance when we're angry. The grace of guilt leads us to repentance when we're angry. Because I think he felt guilty for in his anger saying something and doing something that is much harsher than it should have been. This is something we can all apply. If you're a parent and your kids do things they shouldn't have done, how many of us as parents in our anger have like over-disciplined? Oh, the rest of you, you can just raise your hand if you have kids. Right, we all do. And after we get a little bit away from it, we said, you know, when I said you were grounded for the next three years, that was probably too much. You know, three days will do. And the same thing happens in our relationship with our spouse. We're tired, we're frustrated, we're just irritable, and they say something, and we say something incredibly harsh and unloving and unkind to them, and then we get away from it. And God graciously lets guilt start to work on our consciences. And we're like, you know, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. That was way too harsh. And the grace of guilt leads us to come to our spouse and seek repentance. I'm sorry for being so angry. I'm sorry for saying the words I said. I didn't mean it that way. Please forgive me. See how God uses guilt graciously in our lives to lead us to repentance? Sometimes we're in a meeting, and a meeting goes late, and we get tired, and we get frustrated, and we get angry, and we will say things in a meeting that maybe is an overstatement and too harsh in the way of words, and then we get away from it, and the Holy Spirit starts to chew on us again and again, and we feel guilty for what we've done. Now, maybe what we said in the meeting wasn't necessarily wrong, but the way we said it is something the Holy Spirit is convicting us of. So he leads us to repentance. And I think that's what's going on here with Joseph. Okay, I do need to test my brothers, but only leaving one of them go back for food was too harsh. The family's going to die in this famine with only that much. The story continues. They said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul. He begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Now they did not know that Joseph understood them. For there was an interpreter between them. And he turned away from them and he, he wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound them before their eyes. Now this is the centerpiece of this chapter. And in these Hebrew narratives, is the main point of a chapter is often found in the very center of the chapter. And the main point here in the center is their guilt. Their guilt that is just hanging on them. And it seems like, even though this took place 22 years earlier, when things fall apart for them in Egypt, they immediately feel like God is punishing them. 
that God is causing them a reckoning for their sin. And you know, sometimes that is true. When we choose not to confess sin, when we choose not to restore relationships, we have this constant nagging feeling of guilt that may go on and on for years, like 22 years. And if we refuse to deal with it, and we refuse to make things right, the scriptures do tell us that God, because he loves us, is willing to discipline us and correct us to get us to deal with our guilt, to get us to deal with our Egypt. Look what it says here in Hebrews. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the, war, of the Lord. Notice this. Nor be weary when reproved by him or corrected by God. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastises or corrects, that is, every son whom he receives. To choose to live with unresolved sin and to keep submerging a feeling of guilt will let you feel like, will leave you feeling like every time life falls apart, God is doing it to discipline you. That's just the way it works. That guilt will pop to the surface again. And sometimes the reason life falls apart is because God is disciplining you. Because you haven't confessed sin, you haven't dealt with your guilt, you've just submerged it. And deep, deep inside in the recesses of your heart, each one of us knows when life is falling apart and God is disciplining us because we're not facing and dealing with our sin. Now let's read the last section of the text. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack. He gave them provisions for the journey, and this was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack. And he said to his brothers, oh, My money has been put back here in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? They had this feeling like God is disciplining us, them for what they've done. When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But when we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. And as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You've bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. 
Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring back to you, <coughs> bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, <coughs> and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. I think Jacob notices a pattern. Do you ever see the pattern here? Joseph goes on a road trip with his brothers. He doesn't come back. But when the brothers came back, they were filled with money. Simeon goes on a road trip with his brothers. Simeon doesn't come back, but his brothers are filled with money. I think he's thinking this is a little bit like the game Survivor. Remember that television show where somebody gets voting off the island each time? <laughs> I think this is sort of what's happening. You go on a road trip with these guys, somebody doesn't come back, and you all end up rich because of it. Now, here I think is interesting. As soon as they see the money in their sacks, they end up shaking. They end up filled with fear. What has God done to us? God is disciplining us once again. But as I kept thinking about this, I wondered, didn't Joseph just say that I'm going to test you and see if you are honest men? What's the easiest way to test somebody to see if they're honest? Money. Right? What do they need, simply need to do to pass the test? Give the money back. That's the test, if, if they would be honest men. But they freak out over this. They are literally trembling and shaking. Why are they reacting this way? Here is the deal. The guilt of their sin with Joseph is so strong that it is controlling everything in their life. Has this ever happened to you? Or maybe you have said or done something very wrong and very sinful on the weekend. And you come to work on, on Monday morning and you just want to be left alone. And all of a sudden the phone rings and you just jump out of your skin. Because what's eating at you? Your guilt. Somebody's calling. They heard about what I did. They heard about what I said. All of a sudden, somebody makes a meeting with you, and they don't give you the agenda. And what does your guilt start doing? Eating away at you. They're going to call me to the carpet on this one. This is exactly what I think is going on with Joseph's brothers. But it's been going on like this in a lingering fashion for 22 years, and now it's in an even more um, crescendoed fashion. Here's what you need to understand. Guilt does, never, does not go away with time and distance. Guilt only goes away with repentance and confession. Let me say this again. Guilt does not go away with time and distance. It only go away, goes away with repentance and confession. 22 years they are still shaking in their boots at the thought that God is punishing them. That's a long time. How far away are they from Egypt? 
a huge distance. Like, I think it's hundreds of miles away from Egypt at this point. But they're still shaking in their boots. Maybe a, a great example of that, if you have your notes, turn back one page, has to do with, has to do with David. David, when he sinned uh, by having adultery with Bathsheba and killing Uriah, what does it say? It says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. This is David dealing with his lingering, unconfessed sin and feelings of guilt. And if I remember correctly, he went through that for about two years. Joseph's brothers have gone through this for 22 years of their bones being eaten away, constantly living a lie to their very own father. Guilt does not go away with time and distance. It only goes away by facing it with repentance and confession. Now, this morning as I was talking through this whole idea that God graciously gives us guilt, and He graciously gives us guilt to drive us to repentance and confession, maybe uh, guilt has been coming to your mind over something you said or something you did in your past. And like Joseph's brothers, you've been trying to keep it submerged below the surface, trying not to deal with it. But I don't know how long you're going to keep it submerged, but I'll tell you one thing. It'll be just as real to you 22 years from now as it is today. Time and distance will never eliminate guilt. Only repentance and confession. If God in His Holy Spirit has been uh, eating at your heart this morning to repent about something you said or did years ago that you have not come clean with, God is calling you through His Holy Spirit to make a decision today to come clean. Before the end of this day, call up that person. Tell them what you did Ask their forgiveness. You know, the really, really hard thing is to gain forgiveness with God. But He loves you so much that He did it all. His Son died on the cross in your place for your sin. That was the hard thing. Comparatively, the easy thing is to talk to the person you've sinned against and confess it and seek forgiveness and restoration with them. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.